everyone. Welcome to episode 117 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. Today's guest is Christian Thibodeau. We brought him back to chat with us. We get into how he safeguards his personal productive time and still responds to the messages that he gets. He goes into detail about how he exposed Game Changers, the now famous vegan documentary, and how they cherry-picked a lot of information and combating the emotional appeal of the movie uh, against a lot of the other articles about it that have been more scientific breakdowns. And we get into a lot of sports psychology and a lot of the neuroscience behind sports performance and how it may apply to everyday people as well. Stay tuned and enjoy. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, we have Christian Thibodeau returning to talk with us. We're probably going to do a quicker one today. He wants to get off and watch uh, a football game, so we'll uh, we'll try to be efficient. Uh, but if you're brand new to finding us, um, or you're finding Christian for the first time, he's a pretty sought-after strength coach from Quebec, a uh, prolific fitness writer for the last couple of decades. And uh, welcome back. What have you been up to recently? Honestly, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with the, with the kid and my own training and traveling all around the world, it's kind of hard to keep tabs, uh, but it, it, it's been good. It's been good. I think that I, I wrote a, a couple of, of nice articles recently, like the, the Game Changer article. Yeah. I just completed one on uh, transfer of, of strength and power to sporting skills with, with, right. uh, with, with sport-specific exercises, which is kind of a hot topic. It's going to run probably next week, so the same week that this podcast is going to run probably. probably. Uh, but besides that, it, it's the usual. I mean, I'm, I'm training people, uh, training more and more athletes, which is what I love to do, which is cool because, uh, as you guys know, uh, I was originally a strength coach, uh, and eventually I was kind of branded more body composition guy, and I move in that direction, but my true love is training athletes, and I have more and more uh, high-level athletes working with uh, at the moment, so that, that's pretty cool. But it's kind of cool. We just had a podcast where we're talking about people have done – I don't know, certain things that they're at a certain level where they're speaking and traveling and, and the long, long short of it is like a lot of you guys and these people in these positions are still training and doing the job in which they entered the fitness industry for, which is not like, I don't think that that's a commonly held belief. It's like, Oh, Christian's just speaking. Like you still do all of the same stuff you did. You just do more. If, if you look at it objectively, okay, yes, you can make decent money on the seminar tours, but it's not something that, that is like, taken for granted, except for Polican, what he was doing it. Very few of us can actually say, I'm going to do nothing and just do speaking and engagement, and, and that's going to last forever. The thing is that, that because of the renewal of the fitness crowd, people who didn't know, if you are new to the fitness industry, if I stopped writing, if I stopped coaching, you, had, you would have no idea who I was. So you would not pay to see me talk, to hear me talk. So you need to be still in the midst of things. You still need to train people. You still need to be in touch with, a, with your crowd, with your uh, people you are talking to. To me, that's really important. And also, it is to stay intellectually honest. Yeah. Uh, how can you claim to be an expert at training people, yet you haven't trained anybody in 10 years? That just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not, of course, training the same volume I did yeah. like when I was a full-time strength coach, when I, I would be training a 1,000 person every year. But I still have... I would say like 20 pretty high-level athletes and online clients I work with. So I still have my hands in the dough so I can, I can still experiment and still maintain a certain level of credibility. Whereas yeah. if the longer you stay away from, from all of that, the more you become disconnected and you stop evolving and you, your ideas become set in stone and that's never good in training. 
and you kind of even I kind of even alluded to it just because I know a lot of people on the circuit is just like you're not making millions of dollars speaking like you get your fees and depending on if you run the event but like it's not like it only amount especially if you don't travel that much like let's say you do 10 events like that's a good income but it's it's like you still need other shit for a lot of people they just don't know that it's decent, but if you look, for example, at my own business, I mean, I have several employees, so, so the, the, the payroll is pretty expensive. So, so the, the, the seminars and all that stuff, it, it pays basically for everybody's paycheck. And yep. then the product we sell, online coaching, the, the, the programs, that, that is what goes to the bank for the company. But, but, but the seminars, it, it's only like, I would say, 25% of the income, even though I'm presenting twice a month any, uh, anywhere in the world. Yeah, which is crazy. And speaking of, so we actually did sort of mention it briefly. I haven't yet publicly announced the lineup for Evolve Strength Symposium 2020. And so when we announced the lineup for 2019, you shot me a message because it's mostly Canadian presenters. And you're like, hey, man, this looks great. You know, can I get in on this if the, if the timing works? But so what we settled on was to include you in the 2020 event. So people are crazy excited about seeing that. So, yeah, September, the weekend of the 12th and 13th in 2020. You're going to be here in Edmonton, Alberta, and one of our uh, our presenters, our lead presenters in this thing. So we're sort of I'm trickling out info. I haven't released yet publicly who the other people are. There's a lot of big names in our industry, a lot of prominent Canadians, and we're flying up one really notable American for this whole thing. But um, we're really hoping to put off a crazy event. We had 107 people attend last year. And we're hoping I want to double it this year at the very least. So we're really excited about having you out for that. Well, I'm just happy to still be considered Canadian. So, so to me, that's a big thing. <laughs> yeah, like, honestly, like, it, it's interesting. Like, how many people don't understand? Like, I would understand it because you're French Canadian. So, like, it's quite obvious. There's not many people with your accent. But, like, they probably think you're American because of T-Nation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I often get messages on Instagram, on Facebook, clearly by someone from France. <laughs> and even if the name didn't give, give it out, the quality of the English would tell you that person is either from Zagreb or from France. So I answer to them in French and they like me, what, what just happened here? <laughs> is that Google Translate or anything? Because of course the French Canadian French is much superior to the French from France, which sounds kind of pussy-ish. And you know Phil, Philip, um, yeah. and he was basically saying, because he does, he does, he's in speech skating and, and goes, and he's like in France, they fucking like put their nose up to you guys because like you're a less superior French breed. <laughs> Dude, dude the, the, the French we are speaking is actually the royal French. What actually happened is that when the, the, the people from France moved to Canada to migrate here, it was from the era of the, the royalty, right? And what happened is when they had the French Revolution, they wanted to create a separation between the royal era and the Republican era. So they actually changed the linguistics. So, and it evolved into the French they have right now. But the French we have, because we were secluded in North America, it maintained pretty much the same type of French as they had in the royal era. So we actually are the right, the true French. They have, they have the novel one, the, 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 the yeah, one that is... Try explaining that in France. They probably like tell you, fuck off. I, I, I tell it at every one of my seminars. Every one of my... I, I start every seminar by <laughs> saying, sorry for the accent, because we have an accent and they, they don't, according to them. Uh, I couldn't find a translator. By the way, we speak the real French, and then I <laughs> perfect. I'm sure like they like are okay with it because they paid money, but like secretly they're probably like, "Fuck, well you paid money to this guy." Chris is wondering why he's never invited back to these things. All right, so you posted something recently. 
just because what, what, uh, just one more point about that is every time I go tra like traveling in France, if you go to a shop or to the airport, you ask questions, they always answer to me in English, always. And then I, I will respond still in French and they still try to speak English to me like, my, dude, my French is a shit ton better than your English. So let's just speak French, right? <laughs> That's so disrespectful, but awesome. It's just like, listen, <laughs> you're not French. No. <laughs> so I actually zeroed in on a post you made recently. So it was your birthday, and you know it's not a big deal to you. You said that you didn't even remember what, how old you were. You had to double check. Yeah. Uh, but you, you said you posted feeling like crap because there just isn't enough time to respond to everyone who wish you a happy birthday, which goes in the fact you have a large following, you're just talking about coaching people and taking care of your business and speaking. So how do you manage like, interacting with people, responding, while safeguarding your own time to be both productive and have like family time? And well, you know, I'm gonna go back in time for that one because my answer is actually probably the reason why I, I became a, a fairly successful fitness writer in the first place. When I started writing for T Nation, okay, back in 1995 or something, maybe 1998 or something like that, uh, they, they had online forums, kind of like they do now, but like much more rustic, of course. Yeah. And I was the only author who would actually spend like three hours a day on the forums answering everybody, just because I love that shit. I, I just love talking to people. And because of that, I created a pretty strong bond with, with, the, with the readers. And, and if there's a, 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 an advice I can give to coaches is, you know, building strong relationship, being available, being someone who's approachable is likely one of the best weapons you have when it comes to become well-known. Now, even today, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, lots of time, but I, I have periods in my day where I, I will be on social media. And it's actually fairly easy now to stay in contact with people because, we have social media. I mean, I'm spending time on Facebook and on Instagram anyway, a few hours a day because I need to manage my accounts, right? I do most of that, of that shit myself. I do have two girls who help with social media for the, the publicity, which I hate doing. But, but all the, the, the personal posts, it's all by me. All the training videos, it's all by me. And I, I'm the one who answers to all the questions. I will randomly have people ask me questions and I always, pretty much always answer to everybody who sends me a message privately. In fact, several times, especially if it happens on, on, to be a private message on, on Facebook, I will actually call the person by messenger instead of reply because well, it's not because I'm a good guy. I'm just super lazy. So if you ask me a question of well, what's the effect of, of let's say, overtraining on dopamine levels, for example, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to type a wall of text. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call you up. So I'm going to call the person that is in shock all the time. But I have some great conversations there. And that's great for building. I mean, you have a fan who sends you a question, right? And you call him up. How long will that person be a fan? Do you think it's going to be a lifetime fan? It's like, like the biggest event in his life. I mean, like, I'm not that important, but it's still pretty cool. And just last week, I actually called up a guy who asked me a question about overtraining. And it uh, turns out that the guy is uh, an Olympic hopeful for the javelin throw in Ireland, and he wants me to train him just from that call. It's funny, you're saying the same things that Jordan Syed said on our podcast just a couple of weeks ago, where he will get into messages. He actually calls people and he's gotten clients from it, but he sees it as something that can really make a big difference. And you're cementing something really meaningful to that person. You're right, they're reaching out to you. There are hundreds of strength and conditioning coaches, if not thousands, lots of people both established and emerging in the fitness space. 
And yet that person follows you and asks you because you were the expert that they were interested in getting the answer from. So you're special and meaningful to that person. If you turn around and make that effort to call them, holy shit, you're right. It is going to make it. It is going to be memorable to them. Dude, I was I was uh, presenting at the, the Swiss Symposium that uh, in 2018, and a, a guy came to me and he said, "I want to personally thank you because, uh, like, 15 years ago, I sent you an email, and you sent me like this long ass answer, and that actually what is what got me into strength coaching. And then the guy worked for Jody Franco, and now he has his very successful business himself. Wow, these stories are pretty cool. I just like I have." Uh, two clients I worked with 20 years ago that are now extremely successful strength coaches. So, so these are the kind of stories that I love. It's a, there's no financial reward to that, but knowing that you had an impact on somebody, either in their own training or in their career, that, that that's just shocking. Well, it's like I, I've often said, you know, I've been reading T Nation for a little over a decade. I've worked in the industry for nine years, and you're one of the authors that obviously stood out. You're prolific writing for it, and then you know. Late last year, I was asked to start contributing to T Nation. I started writing for them in February of this year. And you know, you were part of what influenced that and influenced my career and how I work with my clients you know, over the last nine years. So that stuff has a big impact on other people. Well, I, guess, I, I, guess, okay, I guess that not every story can be a success story. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing it for a while. It's just, it's just interesting because... Well, it's... We talk about the fitness industry and like, like you said, you're not that big like in the big scheme of like superstars and movie stars, but, but like in terms of like big timing people and stuff, like you've never gotten to that point. It doesn't seem like things have changed. You know what I mean? Like you're still the same dude that you were probably because you didn't let it go to your head. Like, <laughs> you know what? I actually let it go to my head when I first started. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I got put back into my place really fast by my best friend. Okay? Yeah. What happened is that actually I, I, I got, it's, it's quite funny. I got the, 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 the initial T-Nation gig. Yeah. Uh, I actually kind of lied to them to get the job saying, I'm a prolific strength coach. I just finished writing a book. But I started working on a book, but it was going to be self-published. So I didn't have any credibility. But I sent an article, article after article after article, and, and they kept publishing them. So eventually, I actually got a, I was still living at my parents, right? So I got a call at my parents' house. I have no idea how they got that number. I mean, it's impossible they got it from me. I didn't buy anything from them anyway. So it's weird how they got the number. So they offered me a full-time job, like full yearly salary. I was still in college. So, dude, I'm an expert. I'm writing with like Charles Polican and me were equal. And I, my, I, a few months later, my book would come out and I was walking like I was the shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. My best friend, I was uh, actually, it's funny because he made me, uh, clean up his house by making me guilty about acting like a hothead. I mean, it's a long story there. But I realized, you know what, dude? I mean, you're just writing articles about training. And you're training people in a, in a you live with your parents. Just, you know, <laughs> things in that. I mean, you're not saving lives. That's another thing I had said to me because I'm actually a good person, but in person, sometimes I'm kind of a deadpan kind of guy. I mean, I'm, I'm no emotions. And I was training a I was, I was coaching this CrossFit girl, right? And uh, I was like new emotions and she was having a hard time with her snatch, pressing all of her snatches forward. And she got frustrated, but she said, you know what? Who do you think you are? You don't save fucking lives. 
So, okay, that put me back in my place again. That's so awesome. At the end of the day, we're just trying to get bigger and stronger. Like In the grand scheme of things, even when you do it with athletes, it's still pretty low in the importance pyramid of how the universe functions. Well, so, I look at it this way. I look at it this way too. Whenever we're coaching anybody, especially if it's like you're talking about higher level athletes, but certainly anybody who's working with getting general population people started and going early on in life. Some of my clients bring in their kids and I expose them to the gym environment. You really are saving lives, enhancing the quality of life long term down the road. And at the very front line of what ends up being the healthcare system, where a lot of people, a lot of money get dumped into later in life because of poor lifestyle habits and inactivity. So there is a very real argument to say that what we are doing has a really massive societal impact on improving people's physical and emotional well-being, and that's a cascading effect through society. So I would I would not discount too much of just how would, important I we would, can be. Especially true with the general population, though. Especially yeah. when you're working with young kids. I mean, that's a that's a great point. I mean, and I, people always ask me, what who was your favorite client to train? Uh, it's not a pro hockey player, not a pro football player, not an Olympian. It, it was a 67-year-old guy from St. Louis who had a full hip replacement. And he actually went from not being able to walk, being able to play soccer with his grandchildren. So to me, that was like, because it was such a hard thing to get him from, I can't even stand up, to being able to run. It was a year-long uh, event and that to me that was that required more skill and brought me more satisfaction than having someone win a gold medal yeah no i think that stuff's incredibly important and I, and I hope more coaches look at that and think about the impact you could have and why it is so important that with every interaction especially early on with people it's important to give these people a lot of time and effort and care because if we falter in that then they may fall back into their old behaviors and you had an opportunity to set them up for a better life long-term. That's a lot of pressure if you want to think about that way. But honestly, I think we should put that kind of pressure on ourselves so that way we have more positive outcomes. I think it's also good to keep friends around that will call your shit out. Absolutely. Because I mean like, yeah, well, you're helping. For that. <laughs> well, but exactly. It's like at the end of the day, like you said, you're a writer and you do some speaking things, but like you're not fucking Brad Pitt. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like there is there is some like if you stay humble, then you start to still stay in the industry and try to have that effect as opposed to thinking that you're a fucking rock star. Well like generally most of the people in this are strength and conditioning coaches and personal trainers, which at the end of the day help people, but like you're not you're not this big figure in the well, world. He, he's often mistaken for Vin Diesel, yeah, so like there's, that, there's that. Like that's probably your biggest claim to fame. Yeah, that, that, that's, how, that's how I get started. I mean, I'm brandable, easily brandable. <laughs> yeah, you're just a bald white dude. Like, that's like every movie star. I actually don't write my own articles. You can tell by the way I speak that I don't write that shit. Chris might write all of my articles. been doing that for 20 years. Let's actually speak about that because, like, you've been writing articles for a while, and you, you always find a way to stay relevant. But the, the, the good one is, like, the documentary Game Changers has been – well, essentially a big topic for a few weeks, I think even a few months. And you, you basically came in late with a Hail Mary with the T-Nation article, just exposing the bias and the flawed arguments within it. So would you explain some of the major issues and then give an honest, evidence-based perspective on vegan nutrition? Basically the, the real talk situation on this. Because the way the article was written is that I actually, on purpose, stayed away from the science. Yeah. Because 
there were tons of people did an amazing job completely destroying that film from a scientific angle. So I said, I'm not just going to write another long, boring scientific article. So it was more of a, I wanted to talk about the strategies, the methods they use to try to convince people, which to me is pretty much the same as the, the Soviet Union propaganda machine. Basically, <laughs> just cherry pick the fact and make and create stories. I mean, People want story, just like the, the end of Game of Thrones. People want a story that get them excited and they can believe in. And you package it in a way that will, will sound super smart. Like Game Changer, few people know this, but it actually took five years to create. Really? So in five years, you, you can design it just right for maximum effect. Not only that, it was created by a master storyteller who actually owns a vegan company producing vegan protein, a yeah. huge financial stake into selling more vegan products. So, so, and so the, the biggest issue, in my opinion, and by the way, just, I'm going to start off by saying one step. It's funny because I just posted this on my social media. I, I'm not going to drink mine because I, I pee in it. Uh, I just posted something on, on social media. Uh, the country with the highest the, the, the highest rate of veganism is India, with 38% of the population is vegan, which is 20% more than the closest country. If you look at the life expectancy of India, it's 68 years of age. Compare that to the three countries with the highest rate of meat consumption per capita, okay? Uruguay, Argentina, and Hong Kong. Uh, Uruguay and Argentina, average life expectancy of 77 years of age, 11 years, nine years more than, than in India. Hong Kong is 84, it's even higher. Now you could say, well, it's better healthcare system, it's better environment, better genetics. Okay, let's look at a country next to India. Let's look at Vietnam, average life expectancy, 76. Let's look at Nepal, I mean, fucking Nepal, right? <laughs> 71, still higher than India. And then you look at um, <laughs> Thailand, right next to India, 76. So even the countries right next to it, they have a much higher life expectancy. Then you can throw in Pakistan, which is right next to it. They have a slightly lower life expectancy at 67. But you know, like war, bombs, and all that kind of stuff. That kind of lowers the life expectancy. But you know what? India is barely higher one year. Higher than a country plagued with war and terrorism. Okay, so what, what I just did here is called cherry picking. Yeah, I just looked at random stats and put them into uh, context, uh, created a context so that I could actually have statistical power and try to convince you. Like, that actually is pretty convincing argument. And you know what? The country with the highest rate of veganism has also a very low life expectancy, so vegans will die younger. That's what the documentary did. Okay. They, they took stats, they took quote-unquote facts and presented them in isolation without any background and using that to try to convince you. For example, they, they, they said that gladiators, that's in, that's in the movie, okay? Gladiators, okay, okay just, I, I'm telling you gladiators, what is the image in your brain? This big, burly dude, muscular, a beast, a manly man, right? Which is, in fact, it was really far from the truth. Uh, but still, so that's what you. So that's the image you're creating in your brain, right? But so the, okay, gladiators were vegans. Well, you know what? I actually believe that because like, produce was really inexpensive. Gladiators were slaves. 
I'm not going to feed slaves that are sentenced to die in the arena the more expensive meat, fish, eggs, and all other perishable. So it, and it will stick to veggies, to fruits, maybe a small amount of fruits, grains, because it's super cheap. But what they don't tell you is that gladiators, most of them were, okay, so some were born slaves, but most of them were actually soldiers that were captured during war. And the most of their life, they ate a regular diet from the soldiers at that time, which included meat, fish, eggs. So if you live 28 years as a soldier or, or in a country that where you can actually eat meat, then you live one year as a slave. Because that's the other thing, right? When you're a slave, the life expectancy is not that high. And it's not because you're vegan. It's because, well, you know what? You might run into a spear in the arena. <laughs> so you might spend one year of your life eating a vegan diet. So all of the uh, bone density that they quote in the documentary, higher muscle mass, it all comes from the way they were eating prior to being gladiators because they spent most of their lives eating an omnivorous diet. Okay? That's just one example. Other example, because they all, what they did was just trying to create an emotional response. Yeah. Diaz against McGregor, right? Yeah. The, meat, the, the, the evil meat eater against the good vegan. Of course, they, they, they use the good Diaz brother because the one who beats his wife and takes steroids, that even though he's vegan too, that's not a good <laughs> So they took the, the good Diaz <laughs> and he beat the meat, uh, meat eating bad guy. You know what? That's cherry picking. McGregor actually won the rematch. I know that they don't even bring that. That's that's silly. That's even a, that's the definition of cherry picking. Like, like literally exactly. half a year later, McGregor did not stop eating meat before the re, for the rematch. And, and Diaz actually lost eleven other fights to fighters who were not vegans. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's like the strongman thing, and I know you're going to bring that up, but they, they named the strongman. And I'm not that keen in on strongman, so I don't follow closely. I'd never heard of this guy, but there's uh, Hafter Bjornsson, the mountain, and uh, who else? Brian Shaw and Eddie Hall and all these guys. And these guys are all meat eaters yeah. over the careers. And they're better than this guy. You, you can't, what? First, okay, Patrick, first, he's an awesome dude. I mean, he honestly mm -hmm. looks like the kind of guy you want to go on a, on a drinking binge with. Yeah, he looks, he looks like a big Wolverine. It's kind of cool. But the guy is, he did compete in strongman competition, but not at a high level. First, his height would always be limitative. I know because he's the same height as I am, like five foot eight. So you're never going to be able to be competitive in the real high level strongman competition. In powerlifting, he was decent, pretty good deadlift. But his deadlift is matched by two, five, ten thousand 10,000 people. I mean, he's not special. He's special because he's vegan. And he's the exception, not the rule. I, mean, I, I could easily use, and, and that's something I wrote in the article, right? What, name two things that George St. Pierre, Wayne Gretzky, I mean, you mentioned, I added Wayne Gretzky because of you. So Wayne Gretzky, you yeah. have Matt Frazier, uh, you can also have um, uh, Michael Phelps. Okay, two things they, these guys have been, they are, they are the best at their sports, in the history of their sport, and they were fast food eating do yeah they ate a shit ton of fast food i mean uh, i saw personally matt frazier at the, the crossfit regionals because i was training with a guy who was actually fit, who finished number two next uh, to matt frazier that year i was in the warm-up room 30 minutes prior to the last competitive one which was a, a chipper with lots of running and all that stuff and frazier was eating a big mac and fries 30 minutes before the event 
right? There are literally at least 10,000 more high-level athletes who eat fast food than athletes who are vegans. Yet you focus on the one athlete who has success as a vegan. I know that they, I know that they didn't mention Ilya Ilin, who's also a vegan lifter, Olympic weightlifter, because he got tested positive for steroids. I mean, that's one thing, right? Steroids, they can... They can equalize pretty much everything, right? You can have an inferior diet and they can balance things out, especially if you have good genes. But the point is not to eat fast food. The point is that cherry-picking athletes to prove the superiority of a diet is stupid because I can do that with any form of eating. And I'm pretty sure I can find one elite athlete who lives on photosynthesis. <laughs> I'm going to sell that as a program. Like, live from the sun, right? That's like, it's a good, like you said, they, they play on stories, but like, I wonder in my head, like, did, did they try to make this like so stupid because it will still get more attention? Cause like literally all of us are talking about it and like making fun of them. Like, but like that makes it more popular. It's like the more stupid it is, the bigger it's, it's like getting. Elon Musk and this whole cyber truck thing. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I swear it's flat. Like even the cyber truck, like I think that they know it looks stupid. But it, 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 it's, it's, it's not going to be produced exactly like they're going to make changes. Yeah, like they, they're going to have to. But like now everyone's talking about it because it looks fucking crazy. But like, is that the? I wonder if that's the intention or if they're actually trying to like sell veganism. Because like, really, at the end of the day, like, like it's it may sell more of his protein, but like it, it's going to do well anyways because vegans are crazy. So like, how much of it is? that they can get to the end goal of talking about the protein because it's biased. Here's no one to talk about the Here's protein the if it was good science. Here's the flaw. We are thinking that this stuff is geared towards people like the three of us, people who listen. And there's the flaw. It is geared towards the general population that buys into Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop website and Dr. Oz's charlatan bullshit and David Avocado Wolf stuff and all these other people who are peddling quick, easy fixes to complex problems, something that we are, as an industry, trying to fight. So we fail to look at it outside of the lens at which we look at the world. We have to remember who are the populace that they're targeting. And I think Cameron did make this movie with the intent to be as, like, I'm sure there's obvious bias and cherry picking, but it was designed to try to make people make changes. Whereas I think Musk, with the Cybertruck, I think that was absolutely a calculated stunt to sell and get attention without spending a dollar on marketing. Yeah, it makes sense. And you know what? And that's something I wrote in the article. I mean, to me, the game changer is not like CrossFit. Okay? CrossFit is excessive. Uh, well, okay, we had, a, we had a podcast about that. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I love training CrossFit athletes. Of all the athletes I'm working with, the CrossFit athletes are the ones I enjoy working with the most because they are, it's such, it's such complex problems. At CrossFit, done uh, at the moment, it will lead to more problems. The, the, the CrossFit, it, uh, it cut for a, for a moment. Yeah, that's okay. Good. We're back. Okay. So if you look at, at CrossFit, the way it's done in the normal box with average population, the fact is that most who get into it are not prepared for it. It's too extreme of a training program, of a training approach, and it more armed than done uh, than, than good is done by, by having a general population person doing CrossFit. But CrossFit actually does many great things for, for training. It's more people deadlifting, cleaning, to snap big bases, 
it actually more people we're getting a bad connection again one second there christian Let's see if we can bring you back oh you're good yeah all right you're good it's gonna be one hell of an editing job for you guys it's oh, cutting sure. quite a bit okay so so crossfit actually brought more people to deadlift to squat to do the overhead press to do cleans and yeah the formula itself in my opinion when it comes to general fitness it's not advised but same thing with the game changer maybe if it gets people eating more natural food more more veggies it's actually going to be a win so to me that's that, that's the one thing that the, the, the the film did properly. And you're completely right that it, it, it focuses more so on the general population. And that's why they use the emotional angle, in my opinion. One thing I like to say is that you will never win an argument with facts when you're fighting with someone whose opinion, opinion is based on emotions. Yeah. So the documentary, what it, what it tried to do was create an emotional response that will make people do changes. And the science in the documentary is completely misappropriated. Uh, they are using studies looking at an increase in carbohydrates consumption or an increase in, in vegetable consumption. But nowhere does the, the studies study vegans. They only look at, pe at people with an omnivorous diet, omnivorous diet, diet with increased carbs or increased uh, veggies. They talk about inflammation, for example, and it's absolutely true that the overconsumption of red meat can actually lead to an increase in inflammation because of the arachidonic acid in the red meat. But nowhere does it talk about salmon. Nowhere does it talk about the lean meats which do not have that inflammatory response. That's the problem. That's, that's the, the, what I don't like about the documentary because the documentary itself is actually much, much, much worse than being a vegan. And being a vegan is bad enough. But the documentary is much worse. Well, what I'll do is, because I know you're short for time, I'll tell everyone to go and actually read the article because it's great. I read it over myself. And, and you're right. It gets away from necessarily making a logical argument against an emotional argument. It breaks down some of the emotion and how the documentary is manipulated, the information is manipulated to get people to make changes based on emotion, not necessarily logic. So... I guess what we can really quickly do is remind everybody where they can find you, and then we'll let oh, you get your football game. I don't want to stop right now, dude. Oh, there no. you go. Okay, keep going. Then. I'm good with that. Yeah, let's keep you going. No, no, no. Next question. Come on. Feed me. Feed me. <laughs> All right. Well, then what do we got for you? The, 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 the Browns are playing the Lions, and they have their backup quarterback, so the, the Browns are going to easily win that one anyway. So. Well, I, I, got laundry, I got Landry, so you better keep throwing to him. Yeah, right, well, yeah, much better season than Beckham. Yeah, which is weird, which is weird. It's like it's like Beckham's getting worse, even though he's like he's designed to be the, the best receiver in the league, and he just can't get it together. The, the big problem is that he's actually dropping pretty much everything that's been thrown at him. Yeah, he's open, he's open, but he doesn't make the catches he, he made last year or the years before that. Do you think that's because of his injury? Like, I know you're a sports science guy. Do you think like do you, do you think because of his, or do you think he's just done because he he was in the right situation? Uh, it could be that. It could be the system. I mean, but the, the thing is, the guy had surefire. If it was a system thing, he wouldn't get open. Yeah. Because the design, the, the system would not favor his, his style, the roots, or the combination with the receiver. And he's playing with the guy he played with in college. Yeah. So, so to me, it's not a system thing. I think it's, it's a confidence thing. It's like Harry Price, who just like, got scored six goals for two games in a row. 
when the confidence is gone, when the fine motor skills are concerned, it can wreak havoc on your performance. And it doesn't take much for, for people like that. The two, yeah, two prices weird. Both people have affected me because I have, I have Landry, which he's getting more. And then I'm playing a guy in fantasy with NHL who has price. So I'm like, I'm pumped that price is doing horrible. Dude, no, nobody should care. But like, it, it's so bad though. Like that's, it's been really bad. Well, for two I, I, price is somebody you should never get in your pool. Uh, because from a personality standpoint, the guy, people misread price. People think he's super calm, super confident because there, there is no emotion. He's like the Iceman. In reality, that is just a protective mechanism for people who have high anxiety. Because when you have high anxiety, you overthink, you think too much, and you want to avoid anything that will increase anxiety further. So you become super introverted, super protective of your emotion to not show weaknesses. You don't want to create connection with anybody because that could be an enemy it could, be, it could be turned against me. So a guy who's too stoic like that from experience is more someone who has a lot of inner anxiety. Now, Price is what I call a system goalie. Yes. Price is great when he does not have to go outside of optimal Tech, uh, theoretical technique or, or positioning. When the defense in front of him plays the book, like close everything, the, the, def the defense the defense there are, are coming back quickly, easily, uh, he can simply judge his positioning based on where the puck is and where his defensemen are. The problem with Montreal is that this year, compared to last year, they, they really opened up their play. Uh, in fact, uh, before the, the, the four-game slump they are in, they actually play, they actually rank third in the NHL in goals four on five, five on five. The very good offense because the defensive players are now going, like they are cheating quite a bit. They are supporting the, the offensive. They are supporting the attackers. They, they are late coming back and they are often out of position. Now, Price has to do a Dominic Hasek. Okay? Dominic Hasek was great because he could simply adjust to any kind of shit you throw at him. He just would just throw himself. He's a great... Uh, Patrick Roy was the same way, okay? Now, now, when you look at uh, Price, he is someone who needs to play a system and he cannot go outside of his uh, technical learning. That's a big problem with Price. That's actually quite fascinating because as soon as you started saying that, I immediately did think of Dominic Hasek. You know, he was always flopping ar around on the ice but somehow, I think he probably was the best goaltender to ever play the game in terms yeah. of some of his stats. Uh, there's just something really, really unique about him. Since he started really hold in the NHL, it's definitely yeah. better. He was a, I don't think he was a starter until he was about 30 or 31, which right. is sort of weird. That's actually happened to a handful of goaltenders. I know we're often in you know, sports and whatever, but it's interesting. Tim Thomas, Thomas was a guy who kind of got a late start. And you get some other guys. Actually... I suppose we can pick your brain on this thought. Uh, if anybody remembers, there was a goaltender named Jim Carrey. He was known as the mask. And he was briefly very good. I think he either won a Vesner was in contention for it, but then quickly flamed out. So what are some of your thoughts on the, the mental aspect of sports performance, especially guys who shine only to kind of bleed out? And then some of the athletes who have, sustained long-term success. We're talking about hockey goalies. Henrik Lundqvist, I think, just became fifth all-time in wins for the Matt, Rangers. Matt Murray can play playoffs, but then in the season, he's fucked up. You know what I mean? And 
even with Flurry, Flurry <laughs> fucking flops in the playoffs, but he's good for the whole season. So it's like oh, Flurry's done pretty well in playoffs at times too. So he, he's a different. Well, he had a great team in front of him though. So yeah. So any any thoughts as it relates to certainly coaches and working with athletes? Uh, about some of the, the mental aspects of sports performance, the things that can shake up confidence, why people can go from being you know, great and perform well and they taper off really early in their careers. Well, well, to me, it's all about the inverted U hypothesis. Okay? It's the curve that, that explains in which mental state you will perform the best. Uh, for example, if the nervous system is, is not activated enough, it's, it's quote-unquote lazy, then you, you cannot perform properly because your muscle strength is lower, your speed is lower, the coordination is not as efficient, you're not as motivated, your mental awareness is not the same, uh, you are not thinking as fast, so you underperform. Now, as your brain gets more and more and more activated, more amped up, mostly by adrenaline. So when you have adrenaline, it speeds up your neurons, it activates the beta-adrenergic receptors in the brain, in the muscles, in the heart, and that actually increased muscle contraction strength, it increased speed of contraction, it increased how fast you are thinking, it increased muscle tone to increase the strength, the coordination is better, you're more mentally aware you are in the zone. So people think that the more activated you are, the better it is. It's not true because athletes do not choke because they are underactivated. No athletes ever has ever choked because their brain is not activated. Because when you're playing a game, adrenaline is at its highest. You always choke under pressure when your nervous system becomes amped up so much, you actually lose control of your thought process. So here's what happens. So when your brain starts to get amped up, your muscles are contracting harder. But if you overactivate your brain, instead of contracting harder, the muscles become tight. Because I, what happens, and you notice that when you are under high adrenaline, your muscles are harder. The muscle tone is higher because it's easier for the nervous system to go from a state of partial contraction, which is what a higher muscle tone is, to maximum force. If the muscles are, are a low muscle tone, it's much harder to go from low muscle tone to maximum voluntary force. So as you are emptying the brain up, muscle tone increases. But if it increases too much, the muscles will become tight. That affects your motor pattern. That affects your technique. Your muscles are Try to do a golf swing when, when everything is tight. Try to sprint when your hamstrings and the flexors are tight. It's going to change your mechanics. So that's the first reason. Then when you are not activated, your brain, you're not focused, you're not concentrated, you're not taking fast. But as you are amping adrenaline up, you're thinking faster, you're reacting faster, making connection faster. But if I'm amping my brain up too much, I'm overthinking overreacting so now i'm reacting a split second too fast or to the wrong stimuli stimulus and i'm overthinking so instead of just reacting i'm analyzing if i'm a goaltender i'm starting to okay, will you shut to my right to my left I, I, i'm done i'm done so everything that goes wrong that makes you choke under pressure occurs because you cannot keep your brain in that ideal situation and yes you can train yourself to be better but in reality, it's, it has a lot to do with your brain chemistry. Okay? The, the, the more responsive you are to adrenaline, for example, or the less you are capable of degrading adrenaline, the more likely you are to choke under pressure. A typical player will have a hard time degrading or deactivating adrenaline, uh, will be great, will be great in regular season games when pressure is much lower. 
but as soon as pressure kicks up in the in playoffs, for example, adrenaline becomes too high because now he produces a shit ton of it and he cannot deactivate it. So he reaches that excess activation state. And that is highly genetic. It has to do with the uh, chemical O-methyltransferase enzyme, the COMT. And depending on your genetic makeup, some people will have a COMT enzyme that is very fast at inhibiting the, or, or deactivating adrenaline. It's called fast comp. And you have those with a slow comp, which takes a lot longer to deactivate adrenaline. So those with a slow comp, they will have a much harder time staying in that optimum zone because when they keep pumping out adrenaline, it stays alive in your system and you keep just pouring more and more and more. Whereas if you are quick at deactivating it, then you can just stay in that optimal level state much more easily. And that is genetic, but you also have the methylation cycle that's involved and the methylation cycle is heavily influenced by stress and nutrition. So for example, if you had a huge stress in your life, shit ton of cortisol, it's actually quite possible to mess up the methylation cycle. And the methylation cycle is key to deactivating adrenaline. The way it works is that you need a metal to be able to deactivate adrenaline. COMT works along with a metal to bind it to adrenaline to make it inactivate itself. If the methylation cycle sucks, you are not producing as much metal donors you will not be able to deactivate adrenaline quite as easily. And you have a, a, a person who will have anxiety, a person who cannot shut it, it, its brain down when it gets activated. So as long as the stress is not excessive, that's not a problem. But if you're in the playoffs and everything is on the line right now, yeah. you will have the overreaction, the overthinking, the muscle tightness that affects you. I guess this also probably applies to people in everyday situations that are high stress, uh, obviously, Frustrations in traffic or conflict with other people. No sleep, don't, don't eat right. And those things are going to only exaggerate these problems. Do you have any practical takeaway to help someone who maybe does have a hard time with this? Well, with, an, with a general population person, it's kind of easier because you can just find what your triggers are and just try to deal with them or try to like, I don't want to sound too zen here, but change your perception of stressful situation. In yeah. reality, it's really hard to do. Uh, nutrition supplementation can help to a point. Uh, for just making sure that the methylation cycle is optimal. For example, if your methylation cycle sucks, you will lack methyl donors, then you can supplement with SAM-E, for example, yeah. uh, which is the end product of the methylation cycle, which will give its metal to help uh, alleviate the problem. Uh, you could also use magnesium, for example. Magnesium will dislocate adrenaline from its receptors, allowing you to not stay overactivated for too long. Uh, eating carbs can actually also reduce cortisol. So it's, mm. it's kind of hard to deal with because no, it's highly based on genetics. I mean, we will not all be uh, Alexander Ovechkin. Okay? Not everybody can, or, or uh, Maurice Richard. We cannot all be great under pressure. There's a big genetic component to that. I mean, you can optimize yourself, but I mean, these guys are the way they are for a reason. And it's the way their brain is programmed. Because when you look, it's not just a social thing, because tons of kids had the exact same childhood or experience as Ovechkin. But they are not all Ovechkin. Yes, there's the physical component to it. But from a mental standpoint, yes, your life experience can play a role, but it, it's highly genetic. 
there's this is actually a good question for you um, because your role in, in psychology seems to be a big thing. I was talking with Travis Mash on the weekend when we were in Jamaica for the project that we kind of talked to you about. But long story short is with a lot of his athletes that have problems performing, he's found that sports psychology has been that X factor. So like the problem with sports psychology is it's not, it hasn't been important until like fairly recently. Otherwise, like in secret, some people, some teams have it, but like what's the role in, I guess, sports psychology now in terms of, cause now there's a lot of money in sport, which in the past there hasn't been. In terms well, of the important part of it. My, my father actually for a while was one of the first sports psychologists. Yeah. He worked with a collegiate uh, basketball team when, when he was starting out as a psychologist. Uh, and I think that you're right. Most players don't want to publicize it or most teams don't. Right. You know, because it's kind of like saying you have a problem and it makes you look weak. It's still a very much of a macho milieu. Uh, to me, the way a sport, sports psychology can definitely help but it, it will not solve everything, okay? It cannot solve the, the genetics you have. It cannot solve the brain chemistry you have. However, what it can do is decrease the, the negative emotional load of an event. And the less of a negative emotional load that event has, the less of an adrenaline response you're gonna get to it. Because adrenaline, in reality, it will be triggered by cortisol increase. The more stressful an event becomes, the more cortisol you produce, the more adrenaline you release. So if you're capable of downgrading how stressful an event is to you, you produce less cortisol, you produce less adrenaline, you're less likely to choke under pressure. So the way sports psychologists work, and I'm pretty sure that even them, they don't know that's how they are affecting the brain. And not just sports psychologists, psychologists in general. Yeah. Everything they do is simply desensitizing your brain to a stressor. That's all it does. Sure. Take, for example, uh, an athlete who, who choked one time at the world championship. And since that time, he just cannot avoid choking under pressure. That, that memory haunts him. Everything is going great, but when he competes, shit happens because of his background. So he will talk about his experience. And we'll talk about it. The sports psychologist will listen to him. And then he will try to make that as objective as an event as possible. He will ask the athlete, describe it to me as if you were witnessing it. Okay? Describe it to me like objectively. Trying to get the emotion out first. The more you talk about something, the less emotionally draining it becomes or loaded it becomes and if you are learn if you learn to see it objectively and it will give you drills it will give you exercises to exercise your demons in reality it's a placebo it gives you confidence oh what i'm doing here lessens the emotional load it actually will do it simply because now you're programming your brain not to see it as negative so sports psychology simply works by decreasing the emotional load, the negative emotional load of, a, of an event. So when you do that, you, re you reduce the adrenaline production, which makes it easier to stay in the optimal performance zone. So let me ask you this then, because this kind of came up too, was, um, so you can do strength training, you can be the strongest athlete, um, whatever. How, how important do the neurotransmitters, just because we're kind of on there, is that low-hanging fruit in terms of sport performance? Like, because we talk about the strongest person is going to win, but that's not necessarily true. Like, how much of a percentage does this stuff play in terms of, like, we'll just use powerlifting or Olympic lifting, something where it's objectively measurable. Like, how much of this, this stuff is the biggest factor? Like, what's the biggest low-hanging fruit? I will say that the, 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 the more coordination 
is needed, the higher brain importance becomes. Yeah. Because let, let's look at, let's compare two similar sports, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. In powerlifting, you will rarely choke under pressure. I mean, you can miss your peak because if you miss time, you attempt, if you, you squat too high, if you use too much weight, uh, 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 if you, your competition, you choke because you are amping up too much before the competition, right? In Olympic weightlifting, because powerlifting, it's, it's fairly low skill. So you're just pulling on the bar, you're just lifting the bar up. So yes, there's a technique involved, but it's not so so coordinated, so so fine that, that you can uh, easily perform by Olympic weightlifting, for example. Olympic weightlifting, uh, it's very coordinated. It's also about strength, also about power, but it's very easy to overactivate your brain and you will miss your lift forward because of that. So there, uh, there's a definite impact, and the, the more uh, sprint would be even more, even more so. Like for example, I mean, I remember that Charlie Francis was asked, "Why is Ben Johnson bench pressing 425? Why does he need 425 to run fast?" And Charlie said, "He doesn't need it to run fast. He needs it to feel like he can run fast. Yeah, because it feels stronger. If you feel more dominant than the other people around you." You have a, a, a positive mindset. It's going to affect your, your performance. So uh, I think that when you look at sports like football, like hockey, basketball, skill sports, I believe that the mental aspect likely is as important as the physical aspect. Well, and it's just, you know, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that no one's like really talking about it because anyone who talks about it is like, oh, you're fucking stupid. Evidence shows this, this, and this, and this. But it's like, even with football, like if you wore a visor and had your, your bands in the right spot or like the right socks, you felt better and you played better. And I can honestly say it's not an N equals one thing. Like everyone who felt good about how they looked played way better. Absolutely. I mean, I, I used to, when I trained a lot of football players, we, we always had an arm day. Yeah. Arm day, like it means zero for performance. <laughs> If the intimidators are, are huge, you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to perform better. And I was, I'm training a, a, one guy from the CFL and asked him, what do you guys do in season? So he said, most guys don't even train in season. So the, it, it's, at that level, it's really because the guys are just, that they have the right mindset. They, they have natural gifts, I would, I would guess. But I, I've trained guys in the NFL. You would not believe how lousy they were, lousy and lazy they were in the gym. Yeah. Yes, there's genetic speed and strength, but they just have that mindset, that warrior mentality, and they, that they will overcome everything. Uh, that's why you have lots of – and as a strength coach, it's actually a hard sell because they can always pinpoint athletes who dominate yet are not the strongest, not the fastest, and they yeah. don't lift heavyweight. So how can we sell them when well, you need to get strong, stronger to, to, to be a better player? But most players will get better if they get stronger, but you cannot – if the person has the mindset of a champion, I mean, you cannot train them. You, you can improve yourself, but it, it does play a big role. I remember uh, during the 1970s and 80s, well, I don't remember because I wasn't born, but I, I'm a sports historian, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Alexeyev, the, the big Russian Olympic weightlifter, uh, his biggest competitor at the time was a Belgian Olympic weightlifter called Serge Redding. And Serge Redding was actually much stronger than 
Aksayev was. Reading front squatted 880. Front squatted 880. He could incline bench press 500 for reps. He, he could squat. He, he, he didn't even bat squat because he was too strong. The guy was a monster. And in small competition, when Alexeyev was not there, he would beat Alexeyev's score. But when they competed against each other, he would always crumble under pressure because Alexeyev just had the mindset of a champion. Alexeyev actually did not squat heavy. He did not lift heavy at all in training. And that's another, another thing, right? A lot of athletes who lack confidence in strength sports Athletes who lack confidence in strength sport, they often will mess up their performance by training too heavy and too hard for the month before the competition. And that's what I did when I competed. I, I wanted to convince myself I would not choke under pressure. I wanted to snatch my max every workout to convince myself I will not mess up. And because of that, I, I would desensitize, downregulate my beta-adrenergic receptors, which led to low strength production, low, low energy, and I choked under pressure. So that's the thing, right? The more people who are naturally confident, they don't feel the need to test themselves out in training. Training is not testing. I mean, I'm working with two athletes. But I will use these two athletes because they, they are drastic opposite. Like Gab, the bobsleigh guy, uh, he needs to max out every week. The guy, I, I will write on a program an RP of eight, and he will squat up like in, in five seconds with the eyes popping out of their socket. Say, dude, I said eight. Well, that's an eight. It's not an eight. It's like a 10.5, right? <laughs> this needs, and he has a hard time doing testing, testing events because he trains so heavy for the weeks prior to the test that he comes run down. Even when I program, don't go heavier than this. So I, I, <laughs> I went for 250 squats. But I did. And when you look at the other guy, he's a, an international track cyclist. And Hugo actually is kind of lazy, quote-unquote, in training. I mean, if I don't tell him to put more weight, he will not put more weight on. Because the guy knows that, you know, when it's time to perform, I will always be there. So he, he doesn't kill himself in training. Same thing on the track. He doesn't kill himself like some of the other guys do. And they also, well, if you push harder, you'd be better. No, if I pushed harder, I would be broken. But you need confidence. You know, you know what? Even if these guys beat me in training, when we're competing, I'm like, kick their ass but you need confidence to do that so that's another aspect where psychology plays a role it's not just psychology in being tough or be the king in the gym it was this guy was training and he loved to max out in the gym all the time and i told him well you can either be the king of the gym or you can win competitions if you want to be the king of the gym because every time someone lifts heavy, you need to beat them, you're going to crumble and you're going to crash. If you want to win competition, you need a discipline to follow the program and not kill yourself when it's not the time to kill yourself. This actually is relevant. I'll, I'll clue this up because then I'm, I'm out of time, but I work with clients who they can't suppress the ego when there's other people around to always push to much more weight and oftentimes not necessarily great form when they're in the gym setting. So that's an important skill to develop is just to suppress the ego in the gym, do the training really, really smart so you have longevity. And I can see how that applies to you know competitive athletes as well. So like I said, I'm actually out of time. So I got a boogie now, I'll get you to your football yeah. game. But uh, we want to still remind everybody where they can find you because if you can't tell, Christian is beyond passionate about what he does and 
if you want to get more of this stuff, you know, you've done other podcasts with us. You've been on ours together, the actual Fitness Devil official one, and Dean's side project. You've also been on an episode. We're going to have you back in the future, and obviously, we just uh, like talking to you, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's also one of the reasons why we, we wanted you to come down to Edmonton in September of 2020. So if anyone's listening and is thinking about traveling, something like this, you actually get to see Christian present in person and, and meet him. Although I know you're, you're more all about being up on the stage, talking to everybody versus like diving into the crowd and being like hyper-social, but uh, still. Well, I can be hyper-social for the 45 to 60 minutes after the presentation because I'm still on high adrenaline. It's at Swiss Symposium, for example. I, I, I did present at, at Duffin's place, Chris Duffin, uh, last year. And we talked like, for like five minutes. Mm. At Swiss, after my presentation, I was so hyped up. Chris and I spoke for like three hours. And he, <laughs> he went to my business partner and said, dude, where's Christian? <laughs> That's, well, Christian is social when he's on a high adrenaline or on a high beer. One of the two. Well, we'll get you full of some beer for the social afterwards. <laughs> but uh, So where can people find you? Online. Uh, on my website, tibarmi.com. Instagram is tibarmi. And of course, uh, T Nation on my forum there. And most of my articles are there also. Yeah, guys, go read uh, Game Changers, that, uh, the article that he wrote. That was actually fantastic. Christian, thanks for taking the time to come and chat with us. And uh, we'll have this one up. Actually, I think it's two weeks from now we'll be posting it, okay? Shut up and sit down.